The offerings for this evening are for Eastside Christian School, and secondly, for the Reformed Witness Hour. Let's worship God now by the giving of our offerings. Number 113. Considering the history we're about to read, 
This is a versification of Psalm 41, which reflects on the betrayal of David by Ahithophel, which is prophetic of the betrayal of Christ by Judas Iscariot, but it also echoes or is echoed in the history we'll consider tonight in the way that Judah and his brothers really betrayed their brother Joseph and sold him into slavery. So we keep that in mind as we sing uh, this, this Psalter number. We're going to sing verses 1 and 5, 7 and 8, and 9 and 11. 1, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 11.
Let's turn now to the book of Genesis once more, to Genesis chapter 37. Skipping ahead a few chapters in the story of Judah, because Judah is not mentioned much in the history that goes on before this, but he begins to be quite significant, beginning in Genesis 37. But just to orient us a little bit in the context, before Jacob was in Padanaram, the land of Haran, living with his uncle Laban, where his family was building and growing. And now he's back in the land of Canaan. And the story of his family is about to unfold. So this is the word of God in Genesis 37. And Jacob dwelt in a land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of, of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. We will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. 
And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I call our attention tonight to verses 26 and 27 as the text for this sermon. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this section in the book of Genesis, beginning with Genesis 37, is sometimes called the Joseph cycle. But that's not quite accurate. According to verse 2 of Genesis 37, this is the account or the story of the generations of Jacob. Everything written earlier in the book of Genesis about Jacob and his family was actually written under the heading of the generations of Isaac. Isaac may have been far away from Padanaram, where Jacob was taking wives and having children, but Isaac was the patriarch at that time, living in tents in the land of Canaan, and therefore the way the book of Genesis is organized, that history of Jacob's family was under the heading of the generations of of Isaac. But now Isaac is dead, and Jacob has come home, 
and has assumed his place as the patriarch. And in the story that will ensue, Joseph will have a very big and important role to play, but it will also be the story of Reuben, and it will also be the story of Simeon and Levi and Asher and Gad and Issachar and all of the other sons of Jacob. And significantly for our series, it will also be the story of Judah. At the outset, however, this is not a very happy story. Last week, we saw seeds being sown in the way that Jacob was forming his family. Now, in this place, we're going to see the bitter harvest that Jacob reaps as his family is blown to pieces through the power of jealousy, rage, and hatred. Somewhat ominously, the name of God is not mentioned even once in the passage that we just read. What we witness in this history in Genesis 37 are the works of human hearts and human hands that have been given over to the doing of evil. Nevertheless, God is here in the story. God is here as the sender of dreams, dreams that will be fulfilled though in a manner that nobody would have expected at the time that they were given to Joseph. God is here also as the Heavenly Father who works all things, even the evil schemes of men, for good to them that love him, including all of the members of the household of of Jacob who will be saved in spite of these events. And God is here as the God and Father of Jesus Christ, The same Jesus Christ who one day will be born out of the generations of the infamous man who is at the center of this plot, Judah, who betrayed and sold his own brother for 20 pieces of silver. I call our attention tonight to the text and the the theme of the sermon is Judah's selling of his brother. First, we will see how this is a clever scheme Secondly, how this was a heartless betrayal. And then finally, how this prophet that Judah received as a result of this act was empty. Judah's selling of his brother, first a clever scheme, secondly a heartless betrayal, finally an empty prophet. Judah and nine of his brothers, the sons of Jacob, were in the fields of Canaan near to the city of Dothan. They were there as shepherds to graze the flocks of their father Jacob. These men were now adults by the time of this text. And they were adults with a growing track record of not so good deeds. Reuben, the oldest and the firstborn, was technically the one in charge, but Reuben also had a reputation as the brother who slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, a woman, mind you, who was also the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. Simeon and Levi were the next two oldest, and these were men who had taken a sword in hand and massacred an entire village, the village of Shechem, in order to get revenge 
for something that had been an awful thing that had been done to their sister. Nevertheless, they shed blood in an act of vengeance. Then there were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, whose evil report was brought to Jacob. And all ten of these brothers at this point were seething with hatred against one particular brother who was not present, and that brother was Joseph. Now the roots of this hatred in all ten of these men went down deep. Joseph was the son of favored wife Rachel and was the special object of their father's affections. Joseph was the lad who was responsible for bringing the evil report of Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher to their father's attentions when he was in the field with them. Joseph is the boy who walked around wearing this special coat of many colors that marked him out as the heir. And the brothers saw these things and hated him for these things. They hated him so much that we read earlier in the chapter they could not even speak peaceably to him. If Joseph spoke so much as a greeting to them and said, Peace be with you, my brothers, they would respond with a growl or a sarcastic retort. These men despised their brother Joseph. Now, we will not attempt to excuse the murderous hatred of Joseph's brothers, but it is worth our while to try to see this a little bit from their point of view. These men had always been viewed as and treated as secondary and inferior sons by their father Jacob. Joseph was the golden boy. They knew it, everybody knew it, because Jacob made no secret of this. He loved Joseph more than his other sons. The text says that. And that's evident in Jacob's actions. When Jacob was in the land of Padanaram, he was having sons from Leah and from the concubines. But when Joseph was born, that was Jacob's cue that it was time to pack up his belongings, leave the land of Padanaram, and head back to Canaan. And that's because he had his first son from Rachel, whom he was intending to grant the privileges of the firstborn and of his heir. Then, Later on, when they were heading back to the land of Canaan, and the army of Esau, an army of 400 men, was coming to them and threatening them, Joseph, with his mother, was kept safe in the rear of the company while the other sons were shoved forward according to rank, first the sons of the concubines and then the sons of Leah. And now Jacob purchases and puts together this special coat for Joseph, and it's obvious that by giving that coat to Joseph, he is making a statement. This is my son who will rule over you all when I am gone. This is the heir who, when I am dead and gone, will be the patriarch in my stead who will carry on the generations of the covenant. And then to top it all off, Joseph himself comes out with these dreams, dreams in which his brothers were bowing down before him. And not only his brothers, but his father as well. And his mother, the sun, and the moon, and the stars all bow down to Joseph. 
Was Joseph purposely inflaming the jealousies of his brothers like a spoiled brat by telling these dreams to them and by walking around in that coat? Some commentaries hint at that, but I don't think that's the case. Nevertheless, Joseph sure was naive if he imagined that his brothers were going to slap him on the back or shake his hand and congratulate him for these dreams and for this coat and for the special affections of his father. Now all of this was recent history when the brothers were gathered in Dothan watching over the flocks and then off in the distance they spot a lone figure coming toward them. At first this figure was just a dark smudge moving in their direction but then they saw the glittering colors of the coat, the special coat. And when they identified this lone figure as Joseph, they began to chatter. Long before Joseph was anywhere close to being an earshot, there was talk, vicious talk, of murder. Verse 20. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him. And cast him into some pit. And we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. Long-standing hatred quickly boils over into talk of bloodshed and murder. And then Reuben stands up in defense of his little brother in order to deliver him out of their hands. But if you examine Reuben a little bit more closely in this story you will discover that his actions don't really come off all that heroic in the end. What would a real hero do in this situation? Would a real hero stand by as his defenseless 17-year-old brother is stripped naked of his coat and cast into some deep, dark hole in the ground? Would a real hero appease these evildoers who have been talking of murder and then plan to save Joseph out of the back door at a time that's more convenient? Would a real hero in a situation like this, where his brother's life has been threatened in his presence, take his eyes off of Joseph for one second? And the answer is no. And yet Reuben does all of these things. He speaks up Perhaps out of his sense of duty as the firstborn, he knows that he will be held responsible by his father Jacob, and he already has enough problems due to his incestuous relationship earlier with Bilhah. But the leadership Reuben exercises here is half-hearted at best, cowardly at worst, and his plan to deliver Joseph not only fails miserably, but completely backfires in the end. And that's part of what makes Judah's entrance into the story so significant at this point. If Reuben was technically the man in charge as the firstborn, at least the man in charge by name, we see Judah here as the man who has really become the de facto leader of the sons of Jacob. Judah evidently was a natural-born leader with the gift of leadership. Judah knew how to identify an opportunity and to seize that opportunity and to solve multiple problems in a single stroke. Judah is showing here some of the traits that he will pass on in his generations, the character traits of the kings. 
who will be born from Judah's generations and who will rule over the kingdom. Judah is wielding the scepter of leadership in the family of Jacob already here. However, at this point in the story, Judah's leadership is being twisted and turned into something horrible. Verse 26, And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Notice, based off of that question of Judah, that the brothers were still intent on bloodshed, still intent on procuring Joseph's death, despite Reuben's attempt at intervention. They threw him into the pit, not because they were intending to spare his life. Likely, their intention was to leave him there, leave him there where he will die of exposure to the elements or of starvation. Or at the very least, they will pull him out of that pit and kill him at a later time. But what do we get out of that, Judas says? Nothing but a guilty conscience. We will look just like Cain. Cain, who murdered his brother, if we kill our brother Joseph outright. Let's not do that. Let's not lay our hand to our brother. He's our brother in our flesh. Instead, let's sell him. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelites who are passing through the land. Then we don't have to dirty our hands with his blood. We'll make a little money for our trouble. And we'll get rid of him just the same. And so far will Joseph be from ruling over us as his dreams foretold that he will actually be a slave in bondage in Egypt, groveling at the feet of a master many miles away from us. Judah's leadership skills are evident, evident from this clever scheme that he proposes and also evident from the outcome of his proposal. The text says the brothers were content and they decided to put his scheme into action. Now, leadership is a wonderful gift from God. Leadership is important. We need leadership. We need leaders. We need men in the church who will take leadership as elders, as deacons, as pastors, as fathers, as Godly men who can be looked up to as examples to follow. We need older women in the church who will give leadership and advice to the younger women, as the book of Titus says. We need young people and young adults who will stand up and not be afraid to be good examples to their peers rather than to go along with the suggestions that their peers may have of evil doing. And we need leaders who are more than just leaders in name. We need leaders who are not leaders like Reuben was a leader. Reuben was technically the man in charge, but he didn't lead, did he? Reuben rubbed his hands. Reuben played politics. Reuben crossed his fingers hoping for a good outcome, but Reuben refused to take the decisive action that was needed and required in this particular moment. He refused to stand up to his brothers as the firstborn ought to have done and to confront them 
with their murderous and wicked intentions. We need leaders who are unlike Reuben. We need leaders who are bold. We need leaders in the church who are not afraid to cut through emotion and to say what needs to be said. We need leaders who are doers and not just talkers. Leadership. What a gift from God. What an important thing in the church of Jesus Christ and in our lives. But oh, how leadership can be twisted. And oh, how leadership can be deranged. First of all, look what happens when there is a vacuum of good leadership. Because Reuben fails, now Judah has the opportunity to step in and to bend the ears of his brothers to his own will and his own devices. It's easy to lay down the mantle of leadership and to lay it down with the excuse that says, ah, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will stand up, take the stand that needs to be taken, fill the breach at the decisive moment. Somebody else will do it. But you see, that's exactly the problem. Somebody else will do it indeed. There is always somebody else. But in what direction will that somebody else lead? Will that somebody else lead in the direction of greater faithfulness to the Word of God? Will that somebody else lead in the direction of greater holiness of life? Will that somebody else lead in the direction of a deeper love for the truth of God's Word? Or will that somebody else lead in a different direction? A direction that appeals to the flesh. A direction that leads away from the Word of God and away from His truth. A direction that feeds into the impulses and the hatred that is simmering in the twisted and corrupted human nature. Even if there is no vacuum of good leadership as such, just look at what material Judah has to work with as he steps into the void. All he has to do is channel the bitterness and the rage and the hatred that was already there in his brothers. All he has to do is channel it in a certain direction. It was almost easy. Simple logic. Let's kill three birds with one stone. We'll get rid of our brother Joseph, whom we are all agreed that we hate. We'll turn his dreams into nothing, and we'll make it impossible that those dreams would ever be fulfilled. And we'll make a tidy little sum for our trouble without ever having to dirty our hands with his blood. And how many leaders out there in the world, sometimes maybe even in the church, do basically the same thing? They tap into the hatred. They figure out how to channel and direct the rage and the fury. They stir up the fears and the suspicions, and then they take advantage of the surge of emotion in order to push an agenda. Beware of this, 
beloved. Beware of leaders who take advantage of the rage and the fear and the suspicion of the crowds. Beware of leaders who are skilled at agitating and stirring up the people. Which is easier than ever to do, isn't it? Easier than ever to do in today's world. A world of sound bites. A world of video clips. A world of many social connections. Not bad things in and of themselves, but tools that can be used in the hand of a skilled but twisted leader to stir up hatred, suspicion, and fear and channel it in a certain direction. But an agitator is a man with an agenda, and his agenda is not the agenda of Jesus Christ. Judah may have been the ancestor of Jesus Christ, but here he shows not the spirit of Jesus Christ, but the spirit of Antichrist. And that's evident in the nature of the action to which his leadership led his brothers, which was a heartless betrayal of his own brother, and not just his brother, but God's own blood-bought son. Now, as we look at that betrayal and the nature of it, just like with Reuben, there's sort of an instinctive reaction that I think we have to these kinds of things, an instinctive desire to try to see what was done in the best possible light so that we almost start to make excuses for him. And we look at Judah in the story and we say things like this to ourselves, well, maybe he was just making an honest attempt to save his brother's life in a pretty awful situation. That is the effect, after all. If the brothers had killed Joseph on the spot or left him in that pit to starve to death or die of exposure, then he never would have made it to Egypt and he never would have become the ruler in the house of Pharaoh and all of the other events in the life of Joseph never would have happened. So Judah's little scheme here really was crucial in making all of that possible. Judah really saved Joseph's life, so it really wasn't that bad, was it? Or maybe we say, perhaps Judah was just a little bit squeamish about shedding his brother's blood. He wanted to be rid of Joseph just as much as the next guy. But he drew back in his conscience from actually putting a knife to Joseph's throat. He wasn't quite as deep into this murderous activity as maybe Simeon and Levi were, who had already taken the sword and shed blood. And so he says, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And with these kinds of explanations, maybe we minimize a little bit Judah's behavior here. But I think we give too much credit to Judah if we try to see his actions in the best light. We're going to get there in the next chapter. But when we do get to the next chapter, we're going to see exactly what kind of person we are dealing with here. This is a man who will be ready to burn his pregnant daughter-in-law to death because she was exposed as having committed fornication or played the part of a harlot. 
And he is willing to do that, burn her to death and burn the child in her womb to death when he himself, albeit unwittingly, was the very man who impregnated her and who went in under her thinking that she was a prostitute. That's the individual that we're talking about here. This is a man who at this point in his life is blinded by sin and unbelief. This is a man who is living an unrepentant and unconverted life. Even if Judah was squeamish about shedding the blood of Joseph, it's not because he had any love for Joseph. His heart was full of murder, and it was as full of murder, every bit as full of murder as his hot-tempered brothers who were ready to shed Joseph's blood on the spot. We must see Judah's actions here as totally and completely heartless, devoid of any compassion, ruthless. And one factor alone makes that very evident. When you read the bare history here in Genesis 37, it doesn't really give us an indicator of exactly how all of these actions were affecting Joseph personally. But we do have indication of how this affected Joseph later on in chapter 42. In Genesis 42, verse 21, the brothers, not knowing it, but they're standing in front of Joseph himself, who has now been elevated to the position of a ruler in Egypt, but they're reflecting back on these events. And this is what they're saying among themselves, not realizing that Joseph can understand every word they they say. What they say among each other, Genesis 42, verse 21, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish in his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? Just think about the implications of what they're saying there. These men didn't just strip their brother naked and chuck him into a pit. That's horrific all by itself. But they did this to the utter shock and surprise and dismay of their brother Joseph, who was come upon by them unawares. And this was done to him in spite of his cries and in spite of the fact that he was begging them, please stop Don't do this. As they sat down to eat bread, they could hear his voice crying out to them from the depths of the pit. Simeon, Levi, Asher, Gad, please, Let me go back home to my father, to my younger brother, Benjamin. Don't do this. Then when the slave drivers came and hauled him out of the pit, and Joseph saw where they were leading him, felt the manacles being placed around his wrists, or perhaps the halter around his neck. It's not a stretch to imagine 
the eyes of Joseph meeting the eyes of Judah, the one whose idea this was. Judah, please, don't do this. Let me go home. What will become of Joseph in the chains of Egypt? What whipping marks will he receive in his back? How long will he be able to survive as the property of some stranger in a strange land who doesn't know about him and doesn't care about him? Judah doesn't know. Judah doesn't care. Judah has hardened his heart against Joseph's cries and pleas, along with his other brothers. And when Judah feels the pieces of silver clinking in a little pouch on his belt, Judah smiles with satisfaction. And it's more than a coincidence that another man with nearly the same name did exactly the same thing. Only that time it was 30 pieces of silver instead of 20. Betrayal. The selling of the soul of someone you ought to have loved. A member of your own family for a filthy lucre. That was Judas Iscariot. And the Bible calls the son of perdition who perished in the judgment of God on the end of a rope. And that was Judah, the ringleader of his brothers who sold his brother Joseph into slavery. We ought to take note how easy it is to deceive ourselves in order to minimize an evil deed, beloved. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? Somehow Judah was able to convince himself and his brothers that it wasn't all that bad. Oh, if we actually put our hand to our brother Joseph and shed his blood, that would be bad. That would be like Cain who shed the blood of his brother Abel. But if we just put him into the hands of others, if we just sell him into the, the hands of these Ishmaelites and send him down into Egypt, that's not so bad. And that's our human instinct, isn't it? The sins we commit are never as bad as they could be. They're never as bad as they might have been. Oh, it's not like I killed my brother in the church. That would never do so, something so awful and so violent. It's not like I laid my hand upon him or her. But you did talk about that brother behind his back. You did sink your teeth into his flesh, metaphorically speaking, with your words. But let's take a moment to consider just how bad the sin of Judah's really was, despite his minimizing of it. First of all, Judah's act of selling his brother Joseph was every bit as much an act of murder as if Judah had violently killed Joseph on the spot. The goal here was elimination. 
get this spoiled kid whom our father loves more than us out of here. Get him out of my life. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear his voice. I don't want anything to do with him. The logic of Judah may have been as long as we don't kill Joseph ourselves, then we're not murderers. But the logic of Jesus Christ is this. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. It's Matthew 5, verse 22. This was murder. Secondly, it was a betrayal. It was a betrayal of Joseph who came to his brothers in good faith having been sent to them by their father. He came to learn of their welfare. And in all likelihood, he came to bring them provisions. One of the commentaries I read suggests that the meal that the brothers then sat down to eat very likely came by the hand of Joseph, who was bringing provisions from their father Jacob. But here they take him, and they throw him in a pit, and then they sit down for bread. But it wasn't just a betrayal of Joseph, it was a betrayal of their father Jacob. For all of Jacob's weakness and lack of wisdom in showing favoritism to Joseph, sowing these seeds that would reap a bitter harvest, that does not give these jealous and envious sons the right to rip his heart out by murdering his child. They betrayed their father. But finally, and maybe worst of all, what this was, was a violation of God's covenant. Joseph was Judah's brother, not merely because of flesh and blood. Joseph was Judah's brother as a member of the covenant family of God, sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And Judah took him and put him in the hands of Ishmaelite merchantmen, unbelievers, be carried off deep into the bowels of this world where Judah hoped he would never hear from him again. Judah literally sold his brother's soul for money. As far as Judah was concerned, he might as well have cast Joseph into the pit of hell. It was that serious. And that's how serious it is, beloved. We live in hatred against one another in the church. It's not just a little gossip. It's not just holding a little grudge or carrying on with a little feud. It's not just being a curmudgeon or a gruff and difficult person. It's betrayal. Murder. It's a violation of the covenant which God makes not only with me, but with him, with him, with her, my brother, my sister. It's selling the soul of the brother who has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And for what profit? As Judah soon discovered, the silver in his pouch was an empty profit. Oh, sure, the money was real. 
and it had an earthly value. Maybe Judah got himself a new set of clothes or some supplies to make his work a little bit easier. But look what he has to come home to. He has to come home to a father whose heart has been ripped out of his chest. They deceived Jacob, and that deception may have averted any immediate consequences that came upon them. Jacob was led to believe that Joseph had been devoured by wild animals. Whether Jacob actually truly believed that in his heart of hearts is a question. Nevertheless, he didn't confront the brothers about deception. But he did refuse to be comforted. And every time Judah would look at the face of his grieving father from now on, he would be reminded, it was me. I am the cause of this grief. It was my idea. It was my plan, my leadership that affected this result. I'm a liar. I'm a sellout. I'm a murderer who murdered his own brother. And keep in mind, it wasn't only the grieving face of Jacob that reminded Judah of these things, but it was the face of Jehovah that was turned away from Judah in his righteous displeasure. Judah's experience now is that of the outcast. The man who is lost in unbelief and sin. That's going to show the kind of life that Judah lives for a while. Which again, we'll see in the next chapter. But the prophet, the supposed prophet of all of this evil doing was nothing. It was empty. Sin is enticing. There's always a promise always an allure. This will profit you. This will be good for you. Just give in to your passions. Let your hatred boil over. Let it spill out. Say that word. Do that deed. You'll like it. But the profit it brings is always empty. It's like a mirage in the desert to a thirsty man. It inflames and stirs up desire only to disappear at the very moment you need a drink. And that would seem like a pretty sour note on which to end this sermon this evening. If all we did was look at what happened here in Genesis 37, there wouldn't be a lot of hope for us, would there? Here is the story of ugly sinners doing what they do best, letting their passions get the best of them until they break out in murder and betrayal. Nevertheless, God was watching this all unfold. And he was more than watching. God sovereignly planned this all out, right down to the clever schemes and the betrayals of Judah. Oh, God hated the sin. Oh, he was disgusted. Disgusted by the jealousy, disgusted by the deception, disgusted by the murder the callousness that was in the hearts of these men. Nevertheless, in his sovereignty, 
God wanted Joseph to be there in Egypt because God had work for him there. And God wanted Judah to come out empty with his devices. And God wanted Judah to wallow for a while in the vanity of his 20 pieces of silver. And that's because God wanted Judah to taste and to see from experience what redemption and mercy really means. And how even a man who sells his own brother can still be purchased out of the grace and mercy of God by the blood of the true lamb and give a new hope and a new life. Judah, you meant evil. You and your brothers, you meant evil in all of this, and it shows. Nevertheless, God meant it unto good to save much people alive, to save this clan of Jacob by providentially leading them out of the famine that was in Canaan, but also to bring Christ into the world, to bring Christ into the world in the generations of this very man who was guilty of this betrayal and this wickedness. Beloved, we need to believe this. We need to believe in our God when the ugliness of sin that we see all around us makes everything in life seem futile and empty. Remember, God sees. God is aware. And even more than that, He has a good purpose and a good plan in it all to save much people alive. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in human leaders who inflame the passions and lead down the roads of sin. But do trust in your God, the God of sovereign grace, the God who is able to redeem and to save and to deliver even a man like Judah. And therefore, he is able to save and redeem and deliver you and me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, this is an ugly story, a story of sin and the evils of the human heart at its worst, and yet it is a glorious story because we know that thou art the God who overpowers and overcomes sin and all of its devastating impact and results. And are the God of redemption, the God who restores life to those who are in themselves dead, and the God who can change even a, an apparently outwardly hopeless man given over to evil like Judah, and who can deliver him and bring him into the light of thy son Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that thou wilt give us to see the beauties and the joys of redemption and of thy mercy and that we will be those who love mercy as much as we love righteousness and truth, and that we will follow thee, our God, and thy leadership, and the perfect leadership of thy Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world for our redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.